And let's, uh, let's read the first four verses here and then we'll pray and get right into our study this evening. Now it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll of a book and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel, against Judah, and against all the nations from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah even to this day. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the adversities which I purpose to bring upon them, that everyone may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. And then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll of a book, at the instruction of Jeremiah, all the words of the Lord, which he had spoken to him. Shall we pray? Father, we are thankful and blessed to have all of your word complete and full before us in what we call our Bibles and what is, Lord God, called the Old and the New Testament, what we consider to be your holy word. And we are grateful, Lord, that you have kept the truth of your word to come to us in such a way that we can not only appreciate it, but learn of it, learn from it, grow from it, come to know who you are, Lord, because that is most important in our study of your word, is to know who you are and to know that you are the God that you say you are, and to know that we have a wonderful and gracious and merciful Savior, as we do in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we pray that you would help us, anoint and bless us, and let your word come alive in our hearts and in our minds tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, here's a question to consider as we prepare to enter into our study of Jeremiah 36. If God is all-powerful, all-knowing and always present, and we can use some terms like, uh, you know, the theological terms that God is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent. If God is all-powerful, all-knowing and always present, if God is all-caring When it comes to his children, if God is seriously concerned about his kingdom, would you then think that if errors were made when the Bible was written and compiled, that he was helpless and incapable to do anything about it? Now think about that question. I'm going to ask it again because I think it is a crucial question For us as believers to understand and to know and how to answer this question, if ever posed with it. If God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and always present, if God is all-caring when it comes to His children, if God is seriously concerned about His kingdom, would you then think that if errors were made when the Bible was written and compiled, that He was helpless and incapable to do anything about it? Of course, we would say no. Not helpless at all. Besides, what errors? But such would be the thought of some who find it hard to believe in the processes the Lord used in transmitting His glorious truths to His people. We're told in our text that the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. We just read that. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord and then the prophet Jeremiah dictated that word to a man named Baruch who wrote on a scroll all the words which the Lord had spoken to Jeremiah 
And as simple as it may seem, this was one method in which inspiration was conveyed or passed on. Now consider, first of all, that Paul said this in 2 Timothy 3.16. He said, all Scripture. And I want you to notice, all Scripture. Now primarily he's speaking of the Old Testament because that's all they had at this time except for whatever letters had already been written by the apostles. But he said all scripture is given by inspiration of God and so he's not only counting that which had already been written or was being written but that which would be written to the very end. And being that this was Paul's last letter of course there was still John and uh, the book of Revelation and all. But all of that would become included in all of this All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now the word inspiration there literally means God breathed. All Scripture is God breathed. When God spoke to Jeremiah, He breathed that word to him. It was inspiration. And of course it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And then Peter, the the apostle, would add this in defense of the reliability of scriptural events, as well as scripture itself. Peter would write in 2 Peter 1, verses 16 through 21, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter adds that particular thought here, that, uh, that the apostles were eyewitnesses of the majesty and the glory of the Lord. Primarily, he's speaking, and specifically, he's speaking about that time that Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. But in essence, they were eyewitnesses of all of his majesty, both there and everywhere else. And then he goes on to say, For he received from God the Father honor and glory, when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So he is speaking of that one particular incident. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. So already the word that had been given to the prophets is confirmed by this particular, uh, this one particular act in, uh, in the scriptures dealing with the transfiguration. But even more than that, he says, So we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture, now notice how he writes this, no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So when they spoke, they spoke because the Holy Spirit had moved upon them. Again, you get this understanding of God breathing upon them through His Spirit. The words that needed to be passed on, not only through the generations, but all the way to where we are this very moment. And then I want you to consider some other things. Notwithstanding the scientific accuracies found in the Bible... The Bible, for the most part, is not what we would call a scientific book or a book of science. But whatever science there is in the Bible, it's accurate. And so notwithstanding the scientific accuracies found in the Bible and the archaeological discoveries that have silenced the cynics and the critics, the cynics and the critics that for many, many years they said, well, we don't believe that there was ever a place called this or the place called that until the archaeologists went and found it and found evidence that these places did exist. When we were in Israel just a few weeks ago, there on the sea of, uh, uh, there on the Mediterranean Sea uh, at Caesarea, we've been talking about Caesarea where Paul uh, was a prisoner there for a time before he goes on to Rome. But there in Caesarea, there was, uh, uh, there was a stone that was found. And on that stone was the name Pontius Pilate. For many, many years, liberal theologians as well as uh, critics and cynics and atheists and everybody else said, there isn't any evidence that there was ever a Pontius Pilate. So but not too many years ago, they found that. So that silenced them then. And we can talk about hundreds of other things that have been found archaeologically. So notwithstanding science, notwithstanding archaeology, 
along with the historical accuracy. The Bible is a book of history. There's so much history there. It, it, it is accurate to a T. Every T is crossed. Every I is dotted when it comes to history. And then the astounding unity of, of the Bible. 66 books written by 40 different authors, authors over thousands of years. There are still those, even notwithstanding all of these things, there are still those who worry that Jeremiah might not have heard the Lord clearly. Or any prophet for that matter. Might not have heard the Lord clearly, or maybe Baruch, like other scribes, may not have copied everything correctly. Well, let me just say that the God who loves us and has chosen to communicate to us through His Word has safeguarded it both in the writing and the compilation processes to make His truth clear to us today. Now, that's an, I make it a statement of assurance here to let you know that if God loves us this much and wants to communicate with us this much, that He's going to commu- communicate with us the truth that we need to know and to communicate it clearly and factually. We have an accurate book. We have an accurate account. It is in our language. It has been translated down over centuries into many different languages. But when it comes down to it, there are no mistakes in God's Word. There were no mistakes in the original manuscripts. Down through the years, copyists may have made one little mistake here or there, but it never changed the intent of what God wanted to say to His people. And what God wanted to say to people who were searching and seeking to find the truth. But over the years and even today, the opponents of the important truth of the full and complete inspiration of the Scriptures have sought to undermine faith in God's Word by trying to lead the faithful, the seeker, the curious down the paths of error and confusion with deception and delusion. And may I add to that some of the various and different uh, uh, Bible translations that, that are not based upon good solid foundation, good solid uh, manuscripts that uh, today have a lot of ideas put into them, but not translating accurately uh, and, uh, and uh, literally the Word of God. There are some that we don't recommend. We're not going to talk about that tonight, but the point, the point is, it can lead people astray. Paul, again, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, says this, <clears throat> And think of these words and these verses in the light of where we are today. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. Speaking of the Antichrist, as it were, or the spirit of Antichrist, But the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. I want to emphasize the word lying. There are a lot of lies out in the world today. And I will be bold to tell you that evolution is a lie. And has deceived many people, especially our young people going to school as if to say that it's truth when it isn't. It's a theory. It's always been. But we move on. With all unrighteous deception among those who perish, notice, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. The love of the truth. What is it that we said the other day that Jesus came to, uh, what what his cause was and his purpose was? It was to give witness to the truth. The truth of God, the truth of what God has done, the truth of what God has created, the truth of what God has provided for men who were created in his image, but who had fallen away and needed salvation. The only way, of course, through Jesus Christ. They did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. You can, t- you, you can take those, that, that phrase, the lie, and just go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and what, this, what the serpent said to, to Eve when he said, did God really say that? Did God really say these things? That they all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but have pleasure in unrighteousness. 
Now, Paul's response to this is so significant to my previous statements that we need to, we need to read through it. It's the next verses, verses 13 through 17 of Second Thessalonians, chapter 2. But notice that Paul says, but, even though there is this happening, but we are bound. We, as believers in Jesus Christ, are bound to give thanks to God always for you. Brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit, and notice this, and belief in the truth, to which He called you by our gospel, for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast. Now, that's what we have to do as believers with God's Word. We need to stand fast. And then it says, hold the traditions which you were taught. The traditions not of men, but the traditions of the Word of God. Hold fast these things, whether by word or our epistle, whether by word that comes from God through the Scriptures, or their word, which is the word that was coming through the apostles at that time. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us every consolation and good hope by grace, notice, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. May God establish you in every good word and work. Well, that's going to happen when we do what, what was said before. Believe the truth. Stand fast in the truth. Hold to the traditions which are taught from the word of God. Whether it's by word or epistle. Stand fast. Believe. Hold on to the truth. Then God's word will comfort us and it will establish, establish us in every good word and work that God has given us. And so Jesus declared something about the Scriptures. Jesus Himself said in John 10, 35, and I don't want to go into the details of the first part of it because it sounds funny. If He, he, if he called them gods to whom the Word of God came, it's that second phrase, and the Scripture cannot be broken. He's making it very clear that you cannot break the Scriptures. The, the issue there was, was the fact that uh, they were getting ready to stone Jesus because He had blasphemed claiming to be God. And he's telling them, well, uh, what about what the scripture says when, when certain men, judges, are called Elohim? Using the same word for God, but, you know, pluralized. It would be for us like little G's, you know, but there are no other gods but one. But what he's saying is, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, he says, and the scripture cannot be broken. The idea here is the scripture cannot be broken. It's the truth. And it cannot be subdivided into the likes and dislikes of men. In Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle, one, one, uh, one dot of an I or one cross of a T, will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. So the scripture is not going to be broken in that it will not be unfulfilled, it will be fulfilled. That's the whole thing that the apostles have said, the prophets have said, and Jesus has said. So with all that in mind, so that's just an introduction. With all that in mind, and these things will come into play in our study. Let's press on into chapter 36. And you'll see how important this particular thought is to what we read in this particular chapter. Verse 1, Now it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah. Remember that we, have, we are not going chronologically right now. So we've gone kind of back from chapter 35 and 34, uh, backwards in time a little bit. Now it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll of a book and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel. The scroll of a book really is just a parchment that could be rolled up. And that was their books of the day. It was big pieces of parchment upon which they wrote the word of God. And it was rolled up. So it was called a scroll. That was their Bible. That was their scriptures. Take a scroll of a book and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and against Judah and against all the nations. From the day I spoke to you, from the day of Josiah, even to this day. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the adversities which I purpose to bring upon them, that everyone may turn from his evil way. So there's reason for doing this. And that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. 
And then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of uh, Neriah, and, and Baruch wrote on a scroll of a book, at the instruction of Jeremiah, all the words of the Lord which he had spoken to him. So now, the time frame of what we're reading here in our text is around 605 B.C. Jehoiakim is the third to the last king in the southern kingdom of Judah, preceding Jehoiachin and Zedekiah, who was the last king of Judah. And remember, we've already studied a little bit about Zedekiah, so we've gotten backwards in time a little bit. But at this point, Babylon has gained world domination and world dominance by defeating the Egyptian and the Assyrian forces at the Battle of Karshemish. And this is a major historical battle in, in world history as well. In the same year, Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judah and forced Jehoiakim to surrender the nation as a vassal state to Babylon. But even more significant, it was the year that Babylon launched one of the most important periods in the history of God's plan of salvation and redemption. It is called the Times of the Gentiles. Jesus spoke of the times of the Gentiles when he said in Luke 21 verse 24, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations and Jerusalem and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, it didn't start at the time that Jesus was talking about. It's just a continuation of what began with Babylon. Why? Because Babylon came and trampled down the city of Jerusalem and really the land of Judah. That's when the time of the Gentiles really began. Finally, 605 B.C. was the year that uh, Jeremiah recorded God's word on a scroll so they would be available for future generations. When God says, write this in a book, it has to be for a reason. It has to be to provide some sense of understanding of what God wants, not only for the generation that it's receiving it, but the generations to come. So, Jeremiah did this in the fourth year of Jehoiakim's reign, which means that it was the 23rd year of the prophet's ministry. Jeremiah had been around 23 years up to this point, and uh, God now tells him, write down everything I've told you. Uh, that's, that's a lot of chapters that Jeremiah had to write. But just imagine the number of messages that God had given him by then. Quite a number of them, when you think about it. He not only preached them, Orally, but as any minister would have done, he also made detailed notes of God's words to him. But now the Lord was instructing him to permanently record his words by writing them on a scroll. And in verse 3, the Lord states why he wanted his words of judgment recorded. First of all, he wanted them recorded because the people must know that as the consequences of sin, God's hand of judgment would fall upon them. They would suffer every disaster God had pronounced. So God was, was letting them know what was coming because of their sin. But consider that the Lord also wanted to use every means possible to give His people an opportunity to repent of their sins. The written Word of God would be a permanent record of God's salvation and coming judgment. And so by being permanently written down, the people could turn to the Scriptures at any time and repent of their sins, returning to the Lord in His righteousness. How many times have we walked away from the Lord, gotten away to, you know, from our Bible reading, we've gotten away from our devotions and our prayer time, and then we, you know, we go into a period of, of selfish living, and eventually we come back, and the Word of God is open to us, and it, and it, uh, it convicts us of our sin. What do we do? We repent of them. We, we, we fall before the Lord. We thank the Lord, first of all, that, that He has you know, forgiven us of our sins uh, on the cross. But it's, it's how, we, how we sense that, uh, that change in us, you know. We, we went off to, to live on our own ways, and then God brought us back. And, and so His Word, we, you know, His written Word, all of a sudden becomes fresh and alive once again in us. It's always alive, by the way. The Bible tells us, you know, in the, the book of Hebrews, that, uh, you know, the Word of God is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is a living, you know, it is quick, it says, quick, because quick means alive. It is quick and powerful, alive and powerful. And that's what God's Word does. And so God gives them His Word so that, it, you know, when they come to grips with themselves, when they come, you know, when they finally kind of see where they're at in their lives, they can turn to God's Word and God's Word will bring them back to... Uh, uh, to a right relationship with him. 
Now, Jeremiah chose to use a Jew, and I believe, of course, that this was from God himself as well. But Jeremiah chose to use a Jew from a prominent family. His name is Baruch, son of Maaseiah, or Maaseiah, governor of the city of Jerusalem, to write down the words given to Jeremiah by God on a scroll. Now, being part of this uh, governor's family, you know, he, he would have certain uh, noble uh, help. You know, he, he, would be, uh, he would be looked upon as nobility because he was son of a son of a governor. Uh, and so uh, you would think, well, he, he would uh, take uh, all advantage of, of, of being treated that way. But, but in spite of being a, a person of nobility and having all of these things uh, available to him, Baruch was willing to be a servant. He was willing to be a subservient uh, help to Jeremiah. He was willing to be in a subservient place. He was obviously a man deeply committed to the Lord and to his prophet Jeremiah. And I know that many times we would say that uh, that Jeremiah and all of his ministry uh, never really had any converts. And that's true in this sense. No one turned to God, but there there was already a a remnant. And uh, men like Baruch and others that we'll meet later also believed in God. So there was always a remnant. It didn't mean that Jeremiah was by himself as one believer against millions. Uh, but as far as people hearing his message and changing their lives, we, we don't see any of that recorded. But there were believers, and Baruch was a believer. And, and he was committed to the Lord, and he was committed to the Lord's prophet, Jeremiah. In verse 5 it says, And Jeremiah commanded Baruch, saying, I am confined. I cannot go into the house of the Lord. And probably because they didn't want him to go into the house of the Lord because they had heard his message already so much. They didn't want to hear it. They had, uh, you know, everybody that went into the temple had uh, itching ears to hear what they wanted to hear, but they didn't want to hear the truth from the prophet. So he wasn't allowed to go into the house of the Lord. So he tells Baruch, you go therefore and, and read from the scroll which you have written it, my instruction, the words of the Lord in the hearing of the people in the Lord's house on the day of fasting. Now that's significant that it would be on the day of fasting. Why? Because that's when you had most of the people go to, you know, even, even though they were really uh, devoted to the Lord, oh, they went through the religious uh, ceremonies. And so on fasting days they went to fast. And, and you shall also read them in the hearing of all of Judah who come from their city. So... Twice in the book, Jeremiah preached strong messages already in the temple, which is chapter 7 and chapter 26. And because of that, as I mentioned, the prophet was prohibited from entering into the temple. So Jeremiah wants Baruch to go. He reads the scroll upon which he dictated God's word. And as I said, they did so on the fast day, since more people attended the temple on an appointed day of fasting. Once again, the Lord used human instruments to proclaim his word to the people. Human instruments, not angels from heaven only, but human instruments. Men like us, we have flaws, we're human. But God chose to use Baruch, God chose to use Jeremiah. Because you see the scriptures, Paul tells us in Romans 10 verses 14 and 15. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. So this is how God chooses to bring the word of God to people who need the Lord. I don't know about you, but I can, I, I can remember clearly the people, the faces, and the words that were said to me when I was yet a believer. And I, and I know who they are. And after 30, whew, some years, a lot of years, I can still thank God 
for sending these people who had God's love in their hearts and God's word in their lips to share that precious, precious truth of Jesus Christ. God uses us. Goes on in verse 7, it says, It may be that they will present their supplication before the Lord, and everyone will turn from his evil way. Jeremiah is saying to Brooklyn, listen, you preach the word, maybe somebody will turn. Somebody will hear. Somebody will repent. Turn from their wicked way. For great is the anger and the fury that the Lord has pronounced against his people. And Baruch, the son of Neriah, did according to all that Jeremiah the prophet commanded him, reading from the book the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. Now it came to pass in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah. By the way, this is about nine months later. King of Judah, in the ninth month, that they proclaim a fast before the Lord to all the people in Jerusalem. And to all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem. Then Baruch read from the book the words of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord in the chamber of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, the scribe. These are also believers in God. In the upper court of the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house in the hearing of all the people. This was probably the best place because it was, it was at, at, at a certain gate where most people going into the temple would be able to hear the prophecies. So there are a few interesting things in this passage to see. First of all, Jeremiah had hoped that the reading of the scroll would move the people to repent and pray since the Lord was very angry with the people. But secondly, during this time period, which would have been between 604 and 603 B.C., the people, and not the king, declared a fast. The king did not declare a fast. It was the people who declared the fast. Usually the king would declare a fast. But consider that the scrolls were prepared, as I said, some six to nine months before the fast was declared and the scrolls were read. So they waited that long before a fast was declared. When they finally brought the word to, you know, for the people to hear. First of all, that's a long time to wait. But patiently there they were, with the, you know, Baruch and Jeremiah waiting. We got this message. We want the most people to hear. It took them that long to declare a fast. But there's a reason why. Because more than likely the fast was declared because of the arrival of the Babylonian armies on the plains of Philistia and their defeat of Ashkelon, which is over by the Mediterranean Sea. And of course there had already been the defeat of the Egyptians and the, and the Assyrians at the Battle of Karshemish. But after that first invasion, when the Babylonians had taken the cream of the crop of the people in, in, in Israel to Babylon, or in Judah to Babylon, by the way, who was with them? Daniel. Remember, Daniel was taken in that first wave of captivity. When they were taken to incorporate them into their culture, the Jewish people were gathering in the temple for fasting and prayer to see God's direction and that he might return the captives and stop any further invasions. So while we might think this is great, that they're gathering to pray and they're gathering to fast, there's no indication that they repented of their sins. No indication that they were interested in a relationship with their God. In God's eyes, it was just empty religious service without any desire to change. Folks, let me tell you this, and this, this is a strong statement, but listen, on 9-11 of 2001, days after that happened, when churches were opening their doors for prayer meetings, the churches were being filled. Why weren't they coming to church before? Why weren't they coming to prayer meetings before that? The weekends were being, every church, was, every church was being packed. What's happened since? People back off. The threat seems to, be, to have subsided. The threat's gone. Is it? As far as I know, the scripture still tells us that because Jesus is coming soon, we need to be ready not to be deceived by the wickedness of the enemy. 
to back off that strongly against, uh, away from God's Word, I should say, is the work of the tactics of the enemy. It's not important anymore. Wait till the next thing happens. Oh, you get the churches filled again. They should be filled now. This place should be filled right now. People hungering for the things of God. No desire to change. That's why I always say I must be preaching to the choir. Because you guys are always here. Praise the Lord. An official named Gemariah, just met him, who was sympathetic to Jeremiah, allowed Baruch to use his room, his chambers there at the temple, which was located in the upper courtyard at the entrance to the new gate of the temple. As I said, this location allowed Baruch to read God's word so that all the worshipers, entering and going out, could hear the message. And then we meet some more when Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan. By the way, Shaphan earlier on was one of the people that kept Jeremiah from being uh, executed, killed. So these are people who believe in God. When Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the book, he, he then went down to the king's house, into the scribe's chamber, and there all the princes were sitting. Elishama, the, the scribe, Deliah, the son of Shemaiah, Elnathan, the son of Achbor, Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, Zedekiah, the son of Hananiah, and all the princes. And then Bechiah declared to them all the words that he had heard when Barak read, Baruch, I should say, read the, the book in the hearing of the people. Therefore, all the princes sent Yehudi, the son of Netaniah, the son of Shalomiah, the son of Cushi, to Baruch, saying, Take in your hand the scroll from which you have read in the hearing of the people, and come. So Baruch, the son of Neriah, took the scroll in his hand and came to them. <clears throat> so Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, the grandson of, of Shaphan, who, by the way, was that scribe, as I said, uh, mentioned earlier, that helped Jeremiah, also had been uh, a part of Josiah's reign. He was the scribe that read the scroll during, uh, that was found during Josiah's reign, that's uh, Shaphan, or Shaphan, went to tell the princes of Judah what he had heard from Baruch. And now these leaders want to have him come and speak to them directly. And what was their reaction to the word that they received? What was their reaction? Listen. Verse 15, they said to him, sit down now and read it in our hearing. So Baruch read it in their hearing. And now it happened when they had heard all the words that they looked in fear from one to another. They looked in fear. They were brought to a place of fear because of what had been written and what had been said by God to his prophet. And said to Baruch, we will surely tell the king all these words. And they asked Baruch, saying, tell us now, how did you write all these words? At his instruction? So Baruch answered them. He proclaimed with his mouth all these words to me, and I wrote them with ink in the book. And then the princess said to Baruch, listen carefully to some of this discernment here. They were moved with fear the first time the word was, was given which was at the temple no response except from the ones who were working in the temple that brought that to the, to the leadership which is the princes now the princes are moved and they, he, they say how did this word come by just his instruction he said God in essence what he said was God gave him the prophecy and he told me to write it down so they said, go and hide, you and Jeremiah. They knew the king, didn't they? They knew Jehoiakim. They knew what his heart was toward God and toward the word of God. And they said, go and hide, you and Jeremiah. Let no one know where you are. So the officials knew that the king needed to hear the messages of God's coming judgment. But they also knew that the king hated Jeremiah. So they asked Baruch if the messages had come from the prophet. And he replied that Jeremiah had dictated to him. 
and that he himself had written them on the, uh, in ink on the scroll. Hearing this, then the officials showed deep concern for the safety of Baruch and Jeremiah. They suggested that they hide and let no one uh, know where they were. The action of these officials suggests that some of the leaders recognized that Jeremiah was a true prophet of God. And after they had sent Baruch on his way, the official hid the scroll for safekeeping. And then they went to the king to report the incident. Now, what's the lesson here? There's a lesson for us. Baruch's faithfulness. Baruch's faithfulness is a strong lesson for us to faithfully proclaim God's word. You see, he was told, bring the scroll and read it to us and tell us what the message is. He might, not, he, he might not have wanted to if, if, if he knew, well, these are the princes that are under, under uh, Jehoiakim. But he was faithful to go. He was faithful to give him the message. And he saw reaction. He saw the kind of reaction that he needed to see from everyone. The fear of God. And the anger of God towards sin and toward rebelliousness. So in verse 20 it says, They went to the king and to the court, but they stored the scroll in the chamber of Elishama, the scribe, and told all the words in the hearing of the king. So the king sent Yehudi the, to bring the scroll, and, and he took it from Elishama, the scribe's chamber. And uh, Yehudi read it in the hearing of the king, and in the hearing of all the princes who stood beside the king. There's another example of faithfulness. I mean, this is another guy saying, you know, I'll read it to the king. And now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning on the hearth before him. It's, it's letting us know the time of, of year it was. And it happened when Yehudi had read three or four columns. Now, the columns are, are written as such, you know, of course it's written from right to left, not left to right like we write English. But he had read three or four columns, it says that the king cut it with a scribe's knife. Listen, this is God's word. king cut it with a knife. And uh, the implication is that he cut that section that uh, Yehudi read and cast that into the fire that was on the hearth until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. And yet they were not afraid, nor did they tear their garments, the king nor any of the servants who heard all these words. They weren't afraid at the word that was given. Nevertheless, Elnathan, or Elnathan, Deliah, and Gemariah implored the king not to burn the scroll. But he would not listen to them. In essence, he cut off the part that was read and eventually would cut the whole scroll and throw it into the fire. He was asked, pleaded with not to do it. But he did it. So since this was taking place in what is our month of December, the king already had a fire burning to keep him warm. And so as Yehudi began reading that scroll, Jehoiakim grabbed it, cut it up, threw it into the fire, destroying it. The word of God. The transmission from God to Jeremiah, to Jeremiah, to Baruch. It's amazing to me that people today feel that by ignoring the word of God or even destroying it that would nullify what God had, had said and thus they would not be accountable if people just ignore the word of God they'll just say yeah, I don't believe it anyway I won't be accountable well I just got three things to say about that wrong Wrong, wrong. Every one of us is accountable to the God who created us and made us. Everyone is accountable. And God's word cannot and will not be removed no matter how hard man may try. You can't remove it. You can't get rid of it. If it's written on paper, you can burn the paper, but you can't burn what it said. You can't burn the God who said it. You can't, you can't destroy that source, you see. 
God is the source. And the Word will always be alive because God is always alive. Jesus said in, in Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will no, by no means pass away. And if that doesn't give us some indication that Jesus is God in the flesh, then we've really missed the boat on, 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 on the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God. My words will by no, mean pass, by no means pass away. My word will always be. My truth will always be. Well, God would hold Jehoiakim accountable for his actions. And he would judge him. Let's read verses 26 through 31. And the king commanded Je- Je- Jeremiah, the king's son, Sariah, the son of Azrael, and Shalomiah, the son of Abdil, the, to seize Baruch, the scribe, and Jeremiah, the prophet. But the Lord hid them. Remember, Baruch didn't show up. It was Yehudi who came with the scroll. Now after the king had burned the scrolls with the words which Baruch had written at the instruction of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Take yet another scroll and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll which Jehoiakim the king of Judah has burned. And you shall say to Jehoiakim king of Judah, Thus says the Lord, you have burned this scroll saying, Why have you written in it? That the king of Babylon, in other words, these are the words that, that Jehoiakim was saying when he was burning it. Why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and cause man and beast to cease from here? Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have no one to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. I will punish him his family and his servants for their iniquity. And I will bring on them, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem and on the men of Judah, all the doom that I have pronounced against them. But they did not heed. Even the second message that came, they wouldn't listen. Jehoiakim, his family, or his servants. You see, Jehoiakim thought that he didn't have to pay attention to Jeremiah's scroll. He probably thought it was simple, simply stirring up revolt among the people. You remember there was already some sense of control by the Babylonians and who they allowed to stay as king, you know, as, as vassal servants. So this was kind of interfering with their politics as well as any plans to try to overthrow Babylon. Because he refused to pay attention. He was going to bring judgment on himself. At his death, he would not receive a proper funeral. We're often told in the the scriptures about the kings that they were buried with their fathers, right? He wasn't given the proper funeral. His son would only reign for three months before being taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. Therefore, he did not have any descendants sit on the throne of David. His brother Zedekiah would be appointed king in place of his son. So it's a graphic picture, you see, of what God warns about concerning His Word. It's a graphic picture. Some people today think they don't have to pay attention to what God's Word has to say. Now, we consider that, well, that's obvious when it comes to people who don't believe. My concern is people who are supposed to be believers or calling themselves believers or saying that they're Christians, saying that they're believers in Jesus Christ, but they have no clue of what God's Word is saying to them. Because they choose to put it aside, as if to say, well, I'll get to it when it's my time. I'll get to it when it's important to me. Folks, you know why it's important to us now? Because we don't know if we die this very minute. 
And what if we die without the love of Christ in our hearts? What if we die without Jesus in our hearts? We've been playing games with God. It's time to stop playing games. It's time to get serious with God. It seems to me that if we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, God was serious about sin, wasn't He? If we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, we realize that God was serious about sin and about death. We play games with God. We think that God, uh, you know, He's just a good old fellow. At some point He'll just be nice enough, you know. Maybe that's why some people have a problem with, you know, being around Christmas time because we, 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 we think God's Santa. All he does, you know, is, you know, he goes through that process of, you know, checking to see if we're naughty or nice. Making a list, he's checking it twice. You know, that sort of thing. But I have to tell you, God is not Santa. Santa's not God. But I will tell you this. There is a book, and there are books. And there is a book called the Book of Life, and if our names are not written in the Book of Life, where are we going to be? If we don't take seriously God's Word, if we don't take seriously the cross of Jesus Christ, if we don't take seriously the sufferings of Christ, if we don't take seriously the death of Christ, if we don't take seriously the resurrection of Christ, Jesus What are we taking seriously in this life? Turn to Revelation 22, the last book of the Bible. John says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that were written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Time and again, I've spoken with people that, you know, they say, well, you know, I'll eventually come back to these things. Just right now, I I have a hard time believing any of this. Because you have a hard time believing in any of these things, does that make you less accountable to God? Jehoiakim didn't take God seriously. As a matter of fact, many of Jehoiakim's relatives did not take God seriously. And therefore they were judged. But because they were leadership in Israel or in Judah, they took down a whole city with them. What are we taking down if we are not following the word of God? Who are we taking down if we are not living our lives right before God and people see us and our examples? Any king who thinks he can silence God with a knife and a fire has a very high opinion of himself and a very low opinion of God. But anybody who, 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 who rejects or, or even just puts aside God's word is the same way. You have a high view of yourself and a very low view of God if you do not commit your life to Jesus Christ. The Lord told Jeremiah to write another scroll to which he would add more material, including the special judgment on King Jehoiakim. We already read it. Look at verse 32, the last verse of the chapter. Then Jeremiah took another scroll, gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the instruction of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. In other words, every word came right back through Jeremiah. Can you imagine orally coming back through Jeremiah to Baruch and every word is back that, was, that had been written before? Is that not the inspiration of God? But then notice what else. And besides, there were added to them many similar words. So added to what all was already written, was written twice, And now some words were added to it. More prophecy. More judgment. The same God who gives the word 
has the power to protect and to preserve his word, you see. The same God who gives the word has the power to protect and to preserve his word. That's why I, I feel confident when we come before the Lord Anytime we meet to study God's word, I feel confident that we have God's word before us to where we can understand it, to where many have labored to bring that truth through the languages that it was written in to the language in which we can understand it without adding or taking away any of the truth in the scriptures. Because the same God who gives the word has the power to protect it and to preserve his word. And here's the simple equation that happened with a king. The king had tried to destroy the word, but the word destroyed him. Simple little equation. The king tried to destroy the word, but the word destroyed him. If the king and his officers had only feared the Lord and feared his word and obeyed his word, they would have saved their nation a whole lot of suffering and a whole lot of ruin. But this is what happens when people prefer to go their own way. This is what happens, this is what happens when people prefer to do their own thing rather than to do what God says. Let me leave you with a couple of verses of Scripture in Proverbs Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man. If some of you have been around for the last few weeks, you realize I've quoted from this already. Whether it's been on Wednesday night or Sunday morning, I don't know. Think of Sunday. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Well, that was Jehoiakim. It was a way that seemed right to him. And it would end in his death, the death of many of his people. Proverbs 16, verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit, an arrogant spirit, before a fall. Jehoiakim was arrogant before God. I'm the king. I don't want to hear that the Babylonians are going to run over the city, destroy everything, and run us out of town, and kill us all. And he took his knife to the word and threw it in the fire. Always remember this. When we take any kind of action of that sort, we are judging ourselves. As the scroll went into the fire, so was Jehoiakim pronouncing his own death sentence. And eventually, he would know the fires of eternal punishment for having been an idol worshiper, for having been one who rejected God, who did not lead his people to God. Serious stuff. But praise the Lord that if we'll only listen and if we will only obey, if we'll only do what the Lord calls us to do, what blessing will come. The message is clear. Don't play games with God. And do not play games with his word. It's too precious. You see, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. You cannot destroy it. Listen, you can throw a Bible into a fire and it'll burn. But you cannot destroy the truth that's in that Bible. And if that truth hasn't yet reached our heart and our mind and has lived out in our actions, then it's time to surrender our hearts and our minds and our bodies.
and our lives completely and totally to Jesus Christ. Let's pray.